All we have to do today is turn on the news or get on social media and we recognize that we are deeply divided as a nation. There's so much dialogue that goes on that is just heat and there's not much light involved. You have people on one side, on the right, and many of them adamant Trump supporters and they basically, uh, sometimes some of them, promote the idea that anybody that disagrees with them on any issue is an absolute idiot, is a fool, you know, hates and despises America. On the other side, there are those who say if you support Trump, and I had someone tell me this on Facebook, if, you, if you're a Trump supporter, I hope you die a slow and painful death. You know, so there's this, there is a massive divide. But whenever there's a massive divide like this, there are always worldviews at work. And one of the things we ought to always be doing as believers is asking ourselves the question, what are the underlying philosophies? What are the underlying worldviews, the underlying principles and teachings that are guiding people to believe what they believe and to act like they act? Now, oftentimes people do not even realize what it is that is really underneath it all. Many times there are elite philosophers And there are elite educators who are training people in how to respond to certain things and how to think certain things. And the people who are trained and and taught this, like in our higher universities, they, they don't ultimately even know why they believe what they believe. They just believe it. So for us... We have hope that as we look to the word of God, that it provides answers, that the word of God gives us a worldview, which gives clarity to all of life, that the gospel gives us hope in the midst of difficult and divisive times. And so we're starting a series today, which I've entitled Understanding the Times, Analyzing the Worldviews, Driving the Political Divide in the United States and How the Gospel and the Biblical Worldview Give Clarity and Hope. In this series, we're going to look at issues on both the far progressive left and we're going to look at issues regarding the alt-right. We're going to see problems in both. So we're going to do messages and we'll look at issues like intersectionality. What is intersectionality? What is identity politics? And what does the Bible have to say about these types of issues? What about LGBTQ A plus (laughs) rights. What does the Bible say about this? What about the pro-life issue? What does the Bible have to say about this? We're also going to look at issues, though, like blood and soil nativism. What is behind those ideas? We're going to look at issues regarding how to have civil disagreements and discourse. Because in the midst of all of this, with all the heat and the smoke and Everything else, we need to be people of light and we need to be people of truth. We need to be able to go into conversations with anybody under the sun, confident in the truth that God has given us and willing and able to reason with people. So that we're not engaging in all of the ad hominem attacks and the ridiculous and foolish criticisms and parodies and everything else that's out there, but we are communicating the truth in love. 
as you look at all of these debates as well, they are beginning to enter the church broadly in the United States of America. And so we're going to make some application to what's going on in the church, not for the purpose of trying to further divide, but to understand what is going on, where do we need to take a stand, and how do we just wade through these waters? Some of you are aware there is a document published, the Statement on Social Justice and the Gospel, that was basically a response to a a conference in Memphis last April called the MLK 50 Conference, in which the Southern Baptist Commission's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission sponsored and the Gospel Coalition sponsored. And there were very prominent speakers there. Some things came out of that that were concerning to a group of men, and so they wrote this statement on social justice and the Gospel. And That's being debated now in Christian circles. Some of you are aware of some of those debates. We're going to touch on certain things that tie in as as we go along. But again, what I'm trying to do in all of this is we focus on these issues. I'm trying to, one, obviously look to the Word of God and say, what saith the Scriptures? Trying to maintain biblical priorities. What things are of first importance and what things are secondary. And then I'm also just simply trying to understand where everybody's coming from, you know, so I'm listening to things on both sides and I'm hearing the one side say why the other side did what they did and wrote what they wrote and the other side, you know, saying we did this because of this and the other. And so it's really helpful to try and get a a big picture perspective from outside looking in at what's going on. So we're going to try and bring some of those things in. Today's message, I'm going to start with that which is of first importance, and that is the gospel. So today's message is going to be distinguishing the definitional components of the gospel itself. What is the gospel itself according to the Bible? When the Bible uses the word gospel in the New Testament, what does that mean? What is that referring to? And then making sure that we distinguish the gospel proper, the gospel itself, as the Bible teaches, from even implications or applications of the gospel. Because the gospel itself is truth and reality, and it's outlined in the word, and it's defined in the word, but then living according to principles in the gospel, applying the gospel, many times that's more open to interpretation. That's more, well, how do I think this principle applies in my personal life? That's very different than the gospel is this, this, and this, you see. So today we're going to ask, what is the gospel? What does the Bible say the gospel is? And I'm going to explain why it's important to understand this. And some of what's involved in this debate surrounding it. So first of all, what is the gospel by definition? Brother Terry read for us from Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. The Apostle Paul there, inspired by the Spirit, says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. So the Bible uses this word gospel. The Greek word 
in its noun form is euangelium. It's from two Greek words. There's a preposition, you, and we use that preposition if we say something like euphoria. Euphoria is a good feeling. The word you in Greek, that preposition means good. Euphonic. What would euphonic mean? A good sound. Euphemism. That means a good mism. <laughs> but when we, when we see this you, E-U, at the beginning here, you, angelion, it means good. And then angelion is from the Greek word angelos, from which we get the word angel. Does anybody what, know what that word means at its heart? It means messenger. So in its noun form in the Bible, the word translated gospel in many translations means the good message or the good news. But when you do a word study on the word euangelion, what you begin to realize is that the New Testament uses it in a very narrow and very specific way. It does not refer to it like we might say, I got good news, the cancer is in remission. Or I got good news, this group called Publishers Clearinghouse has shown up at my door. <laughs> or I got good news, the UPS man is here. You know, he's a messenger of good tidings, right? He brings things that we like. Good news. Well, no, the Bible uses the word gospel, euangelion, in the New Testament in a very narrow and specific way to speak about that which is the best news. Namely, to speak about what God has done in Christ Jesus to save sinful humanity. Okay? So... We're going to go through a list here in a moment. I'm going to read through a list very quickly of some of the many times that this word is used in the scriptures. And I want you to be listening for key elements or components in it. But as you look at certain Bible dictionaries and they try and encapsulate and give a definition of what this word means. Like the Harper's Bible Dictionary says, the gospel is the oral message. And I think that it needs to be a little broader than oral. It's also written. It's in written form. So let's just say message that encapsulates God's salvific activity in Christ Jesus on behalf of humankind. Okay. Um, the Dictionary of Bible Themes says this. The gospel is the good news of God's redemption of sinful humanity through the life, death and resurrection of his son. That's getting a lot closer to it right there. The good news of God's redemption of sinful humanity through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. Now, we could add some other components to that. Uh, Jesus obviously has ascended. He's our mediator on our behalf, which we need. But this is getting at the heart of it. As we look to... The New Testament. Let me read for us some of these verses. I'm just going to start at the beginning. I'm going to read some of these quickly where this word euangelion, gospel, is used. Listen to these very carefully and kind of get the bulk teaching of what, what is contained here. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. 
Matthew 9.35, Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. One thing you're going to hear as we go through these verses is you're going to hear preaching over and over and over again. Why? Because it's good news at its very heart, and so it's being proclaimed. Okay? Matthew 11.5, the blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Good news preached to them. Matthew 24, 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. Then the end will come. Matthew 26, 13, assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Mark 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Remember again, good news. What does that mean? The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Mark 1.14, now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And he was saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. So you see, repentance in this passage is something that's to be a proper response to the gospel. You notice that? Repent and believe in the good news, the gospel. Mark eight thirty five. for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Mark thirteen ten. the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Jesus read from Isaiah 61 in Luke 4:18, "The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor." As we jump forward to the book of Acts, so when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many of the villages of the Samaritans. In Acts 14:7, they were preaching the gospel there. Acts 14.21, when they had preached the gospel there. You know how many times preached is used here? Over and over and over again. Preach the gospel, preach the gospel, preach the gospel. Acts 15.7, when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Notice here again, Hearing the word of the gospel, and then what's a proper response to that? Believing in the gospel. Okay? These things are going to be important. I'm going to explain them in more detail as we go along. We're just trying to get the bulk of what the scriptures say. I'm literally going down through a list here, guys, of every time the word euangelion is translated gospel in the New King James Version of the Bible. We're not going to look at every single one on this list, but so far I've just been reading down through this list. Okay? So what are we trying to do? We're trying to see how the Bible defines gospel. Not making up this idea of what the gospel is out of our own heads and then applying it randomly. Okay? Acts 16.10, now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. 
Acts 20.24, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Romans 1 and verse 1, Brother Terry wrote, read that for us, that Paul was separated to the gospel of God. Romans 1.9 says, God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I make mention of you in my prayers. We're going to jump down to Romans 2.16. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Paul there calls it my gospel because he's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's saying the gospel that I've preached to you. Okay, He's not distinguishing that from the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's just saying this is the gospel I've been preaching to you. The good news I've been preaching to you about Christ. How shall they preach unless they are sent? Romans 10, 15, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Romans 10, 16, they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? People are called to believe in the gospel. And if they do so, that's called obeying the gospel because they're believing in what God requires them to believe. Okay. Romans 8.28, speaking of ethnic Israel, those who are ethnic Jews who have not embraced Christ Jesus, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers. Paul mentions that he's a minister to minister the gospel of God in Romans 15.16. Now notice this, 1 Corinthians 1.17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. We're going to come back to this. Notice, baptism is not a definitional component of the gospel. You see? He said, I did not, I wasn't even sent or ordained by God to, to come and baptize, but to preach the gospel. Okay? So being baptized is a good thing. We're called to do that. It symbolizes the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it is not the gospel. Otherwise, the Apostle Paul would not distinguish between those two in such a way, right? Does that make sense? Understand what I'm saying? The gospel is what saves us. We saw that in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. We're saved through the gospel. And 1 Corinthians 4.15 says, For for though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. So it's through the message, the preaching of the gospel, that God justifies his people. That he makes us right with him, declares us right with him. It's through the gospel. That's essential to understand. And I'm going to explain that in just a moment, why that's essential to understand. Okay? So just hang on to some of these things. I'm going to jump to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to look at this passage in more detail. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand. And it goes on to say, by which you are saved. And at that point, we should be saying, okay, I need to know what this gospel is. 
because I'm saved by this gospel. And then he goes on there to say that some essential components of this gospel are that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was dead and buried, and that he rose again according to the scriptures. So there are some essential components of the gospel, are they not? That Jesus died and that he rose again for our sins. To save us from our sins. Okay? It's called Christ's gospel in 2 Corinthians 2.12. 2 Corinthians 4.3, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. 2 Corinthians 4.4, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ is hidden from those that the God of this age has blinded. So Satan doesn't want people to hear the gospel. And on and on. Again, we're not going to walk through all of these. I do want to jump down to Galatians 1 and so we can see the importance of the true gospel. Galatians 1, 7, which is not another. There are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, so think about this. If we're saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ, then a perversion of the gospel of Christ is of first importance, is it not? Because it is tinkering with and perverting that which through we are saved. So when it comes to the true gospel, you don't mess with the gospel. When it comes to the true gospel, it's not a matter of opinion. When it comes to the true gospel, it's not a matter of, well, I'm going to leave myself open to reflect on whether or not this is the true gospel. Because I have to have an open mind. Y'all, there are some things we should never ever open ourselves up to doubt. I am all for reasoned dialogue. I am all for maintaining an openness on secondary matters that we could be wrong and reasoning with one another. But the reality is this. There are some things that are so essential to the faith that you should not let yourself ever doubt them. And if doubts ever creep in, you need to drive out those doubts and say, no, I will fight this doubt tooth and nail. I'm not going to give a hearing to Satan and his messengers. The gospel itself is something that we should never doubt. The gospel that God, through the work of Jesus Christ in his life and righteous life, in his death, that atones for our sins in his resurrection from the dead and conquering death. These things are essential to the faith and I will not allow myself to doubt these things. I'm going to cling to these by faith. Anybody who seeks to pervert those, who abandons those, refuses to believe those is outside of Christ. They have bought into a false gospel. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 1.9 says, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. You see the strength of that. 
And he goes on, even if an angel from heaven comes and preaches any other gospel, let him be accursed. So you see, the gospel is of first importance. The gospel is serious. The gospel is significant. The gospel is by, that by which we are saved. And so I, I want to point out to us, and we need to be very clear in this. We ought not to call the gospel those things which are not the gospel. If we do, we are trifling with that which God says is the means that he uses to bring us to salvation. Okay, so this is this is dead serious, right? On the positive side, folks, this is our hope. <laughs> this is our hope. Because we who are born in trespasses and sins, and we who pile up sin over our lives, we cannot be saved apart from the righteous working of Christ Jesus in his perfect keeping of the law, his death, his burial, his resurrection. Without that, we are toast. There is no hope. So this is our joy. This is our life. Because Christ is our life, and this is the gospel of Christ. Right? So when we consider some of these essential elements of the gospel, by its very definition, and the things the scriptures say are part of this gospel, they would be things such as the Bible teaches in Luke chapter 1 and other passages, Jesus was born of a virgin. Now, why is it essential to the gospel that Jesus was born of a virgin? If Jesus was not born of a virgin by the Holy Spirit, then he was born of two human parents and he just has human origin. He's not born of God. And I always bring up this question when somebody says, well, is this an essential element? You know, do you have to believe this to be saved? I always ask the question, well, what are you going to believe if you don't believe it? And why would you not believe it? The reason you wouldn't believe it is because you don't want to believe in the supernatural at all. Right? I mean, you either don't want to believe in the exclusivity of Christ and who he is exclusively as the God-man. In that case, you might believe in the supernatural, but say, but no, I just don't believe Jesus is. Or you don't believe in the supernatural at all. So you say, it's not possible for a virgin to be conceived. And let's go ahead and snip out all the other places in the Bible where Jesus did miracles. Those were just written by men. But then Jesus' nice little statements like, do unto others. Yeah, that's what Jesus really said. Which is just rubbish. No evidence for that at all. Okay? So, Jesus' virgin birth. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. God is his Father. The scriptures teach us that Jesus lived a perfect life, that he was without sin. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. And this is of first importance. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's start with verse 16 and work our way down. But let's put this in a nutshell. The book of Hebrews said... 
that all of the priests that came offering sacrifices to God have to, had to offer sacrifices for their own sin. And because they had to do that, they had to offer those sacrifices over and over and over again. But Christ came, offered himself one time, and sat down at the right hand of God. Because he is perfect, he did not sin, he did not have to be punished for his own sin, and he could bear the punishment for our sin. If Christ had sinned, which I propose he could not have sinned because he is the perfect son of God. But if he had, then there would be no hope for us because he would have had to face the punishment for his own sins. And so this is an essential element component of the gospel itself, that Jesus lived a righteous life so that we could be made righteous. If Jesus did not live a righteous life, we cannot be made righteous. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Can anybody say amen to that? I'm a new creation in Christ. Now, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. This work of the gospel and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing or counting their trespasses and sins to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation, the gospel, the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Note verse 21. For he made him... Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And there is that glorious exchange, that double imputation. Our sins were counted to Jesus, and his righteousness is counted as ours. This is an essential component of the gospel, that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life, fulfilling perfectly all of the law. Think about it in legal terms. I, I use this illustration in the jail all the time. You can figure out why. <laughs> the Bible says the wages of sin is death. In the divine courtroom, the punishment for our sin is capital punishment. That capital punishment is both that we will die physically, but more significantly, it is Death to God, separation from God and all of his blessing and favor, spiritual death. Okay, so whenever we sin, we have a divine death sentence against us. Now think about this. How many times have you sinned in your life? The Bible said the wicked go astray from the womb speaking lies. You start walking down all of the sins that you've ever committed in your life. How many times have you had a greedy thought? How many times have you spoken a lie or thought a lie? How many times have you coveted something that God has forbidden to you? How many times have you had an impure thought? How many times have you actually stolen something? How many times have you wanted to steal something? How many times have you been angry without a cause? How many times have you been jealous? How many times have you uh, been envious of someone else? Just keep going. How many charges do you have against you in the divine court? 10,000? 
A hundred thousand? A million? Think about it. From the time that you are born until now, however old you are, how many times have you broken God's law? And every one of those deserves capital punishment. Now think about this even in legal terms, and I tell the guys in the jail this. If you go up before the judge on a nonviolent offense, the first time you've got a clean record, the judge is usually going to look at that and be lenient with you, right? They're going to look at your record. This guy's not a troublemaker. He's got a clean record. This is nonviolent. Usually you're not going to do any time for that type of charge initially. You're going to get some probation or something like that in the United States, and you're going to be out. But then if you go up before the judge again on another charge, let's say it's even another nonviolent charge, like a drug charge, and then you go up before the judge again, and you go up before the judge again, and you go up before the judge again. What happens? Pretty soon they're looking at you and saying, this guy's not getting the picture. And the more charges that you get piled up, then the less lenient they're going to be with you when you come before them again. Well, God is the perfect and righteous and holy judge. He cannot let one sin eternally into the new heavens and the new earth. And yet we have tens, if not hundreds of thousands, if not a million or millions of sins that we have piled up. Is the gospel not good news? Because here's what the gospel is. Instead of God looking at our rap sheet, all the sins that we've piled up, God looks at Jesus' rap sheet. And you know what? There's not a charge against him. And not only is there not a charge against him, there is absolute perfection and righteousness and devotion to God in every thought, every word, every action for all his life. And so God does not impute our sins against us if we put faith in Jesus. And you see, this is essential then to the gospel, the good news. Because if God is going to look at our rap sheet in any way, shape, or form, think about this. If somebody's on death row, how many good, how many little old ladies do they write letters to, and how much can they apologize, and how much can they repay? To say, well, they don't deserve to die now. Let's say they've gone out and viciously and violently and premeditatively slaughtered someone. And they deserve to die. Would we say it's justice? That if they're a good little boy while they're in jail on death row and they don't get in any fights, that we should let them go? No. And so God cannot let us go and be just. But he can be just because... If we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because of the justice of his son, Jesus Christ. So the gospel is our hope. And that's an essential element of the gospel that Jesus was without sin. The atoning work of Jesus on the cross in his death for us. Look at Isaiah 53. Look at Isaiah chapter 53. And my friends, as, as you consider this, and you think about any other false worldview out there, any other religion out there that promotes a way to God, here's what distinguishes the true gospel from these false religions. At their heart, the false religions have us working our way to God 
and earning our salvation through our own works. But the true gospel says we are damned unless the righteousness of Jesus in his life and his death and his conquering over death and his resurrection is ours. Okay, so take some hope here. You don't have to know all the intricacies of all of the false religions out there to be able to talk to people about the gospel. You just need to know what the gospel is. And as you talk to people and you ask them questions like, well, how do you get right with God? What you're going to hear is that they believe you get right with God through your own righteousness. And if you know the gospel, then you can give them the gospel. That no, it's not through our righteousness. It's through the righteousness of Jesus. Okay? Jesus' atoning work for us in his death on the cross. Isaiah chapter 53. In verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. This is spiritually talking about Jesus being made sin for us, as it said in 2 Corinthians 5 21. And so he bore the punishment that we deserved in his death on the cross. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Notice that? The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Who will declare his generation? We go down in verse 10. It says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. What's that all about? God wanted Jesus to go to the cross. Jesus, before the foundation of the world, was decreed to come, and Jesus wanted to come to do the will of his Father in order to save God's sheep. Now, as you, as you think about this, I'm trying to be very clear so that we don't make speci our specific theological distinctions the actual definitional gospel itself. Because as soon as we do, we exclude from salvation anyone that disagrees with us. You understand that? I mean, this is deathly serious. You know, if, if we start saying you have to hold to our particular flavor and all its nuances of Reformed theology in order to believe the gospel, then we're saying anybody that's outside of that is damned. And what we're doing is we are, at that point, we're not able to point to any specific text of Scripture to support that my distinctive is a definitional component of the gospel itself. We can't go to any text that uses the word gospel and see that there. We have to reason to that point. And let me just point out to you this, that our reasoning can be flawed. And so we've got to be careful when there's a lot of logical error, A-I-R, 
between the text of Scripture and our conclusions. The more air that's there, the more likely that we err. Okay, you understand what I'm saying? So I'm, I'm even trying to be careful and not use some distinctive terminology to specific theories of the atonement in the definitional aspect of the gospel. But to say that, it is clear from Scripture that Jesus' atoning work in, his, in the death on the cross secured our redemption. Without that, we are lost. And it is important to distinguish that what Jesus did there, as we read in Isaiah 53 and from 1 Corinthians 15 and other passages, is that he actually accomplished something. So here's where I will use the bazooka term heresy. Let's be careful before we pull out the laser guide, you know, the, the laser guided missiles, the heavy artillery. All right. You know, if you're going squirrel hunting and you pull out the 50 cal, there's not going to be much left. All right. Let's let's choose our weapon for the target. All right. Somebody's like, you got a theological squirrel on your roof. <clears throat> Blow your house off the map. Whoa, 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 back down. That was too big of a gun, bro. <laughs> right? I mean, when we go dropping gospel bombs all over the place. Come on. We go dropping gospel bombs all over the place. You know, I just didn't understand the gospel until I understood social justice. I just didn't understand the gospel until, you know, I met this group of people who were doing justice this way. It's like, whoa, hold back. If you're gonna if you're gonna say things like, I didn't know the gospel, or you're not living the gospel, you're bringing out the heavy artillery. If you're wrong, if you're wrong, the implications are massive. People are gonna get hurt at multiple levels. The end potential is that you redefine the very gospel itself and people aren't getting the true gospel and people are going to hell. See how serious this is. Okay? So there's reason to be concerned and there's reason to think carefully about this. There have been theories like the example theory of the atonement. Well, what did Jesus do on the cross? He just gave us an example of, of godly living and righteousness and even being willing to die for the Lord. Well, if all Jesus did was give us an example and he was not made sin for us and he did not bear our iniquities, then the capital sentence in the divine court is still hanging over our head. And the wages that we have earned for our sin will be paid in the final day. Right? Okay. But when we get into the finer nuances of even theories of the atonement that I would agree with, you know, penal substitutionary atonement, we start nuancing that out very, very finely. Well, I'm going to be just a little bit open. What I am going to say is 
the gospel of Jesus Christ must teach, must teach that Jesus had to actually die and bear the punishment for sins for us in order for us to be saved. And if that did not happen, then we are all lost. I think the scriptures are clear about that. All right? The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And after we look at this, I'm going to make some points of application to some specific situations. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The resurrection from the dead. If Jesus had not have risen from the dead, would we have any hope? Absolutely not. The scriptures are clear. This is a definitional component of the gospel. It is essential to the gospel of Jesus Christ, this good news. Let's start with verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to to the scriptures. Essential to the gospel itself. We are sinners. If we are not sinners. Then Jesus didn't need to die for us. We don't need to be saved. It's essential to the gospel. He died for our sins. According to the scriptures. And that he was buried. And he rose again the third day. According to the scriptures. Notice this. The apostle Paul says we're saved by this. And that we have to keep believing this. This is something not that we say, oh, I believe that once, but now I don't anymore. It's something that we wake up every morning and say, I believe it today. It's what we're called to. Verse 12, now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, our preaching is empty. Your faith is empty. Yes, we're found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised of Christ, whom he did not raise up. If in fact the dead do not rise, for if the dead do not rise, Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. Notice this, you are still in your sins. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, it would have been an indication that he was being punished for his own sin, which would mean that we cannot be saved because his perfection cannot be counted as ours because it did not exist, you see? So this is of first importance, is it not? That Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Now, Let's get specific with a few issues. We need to very carefully distinguish between the gospel itself, as we've been looking at, what does the Bible say the gospel is, and even distinguish between that and how the gospel applies to us in our lives. <clears throat> And how we can live consistently with the principles that the gospel teaches us. Okay? Does that make sense? The Bible does tell us that the gospel and what God has done for us in saving us through the work of Jesus Christ gives us great motivation to godliness. Look over at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 
32. And so when we hear preachers talk about, you know, the gospel applies to all of life, there, there's some truth in that. I think I've even said that myself. But what, what do we mean by that if we're saying it rightly? For one thing, we're saying the fact that God has set his affection on us even while we were yet sinners and sent his son Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life and died that atoning death and rose from the dead triumphing over death so that we can be saved. That reality gives us a reason to love hateful people. Gives us a reason to forgive people. Gives us a reason to do good to those who are spitting and screaming in our faces rather than turn around and spit at them and bite them on the ear. Okay? The gospel gives us motivation. Notice this in, uh, let's look at verse 31 of Ephesians 4. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Does God just stop there? Nike swoosh God, just do it. You don't need to just put these things off. But what's my motivation? Do I have any reason to think I ought to do this? No, just shut up and do it. Is that how God addresses us? No, he tells us what to do. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. You see, when we, when we know what we've been forgiving, we will be forgiving people, right? So the gospel that we've been forgiven in Christ gives us daily motivation to live for the glory of God, right? But, if we forgive somebody that has forgiven us, have we just done the gospel? Not in the definitional sense of the gospel, because only Jesus could do the gospel in that sense. Okay? Now, are we, are we living according to the principles of the gospel in the sense of what this text says? We're forgiving others because we recognize we've been forgiven. Yes. But is our forgiving other people the gospel? No, it's not. No, it's not. Okay? So we need to distinguish between the implications of the gospel and the motivation the gospel gives us and the gospel itself. Okay? And some people, I fear, in their terminology, are blurring those lines. They're blurring those lines. It, it happened very prominently in what is called the social gospel movement. I'm going to get to that in my second point. It better applies to my second point. I do, I do want to read an article here, a portion, just an excerpt from an article by someone. I'll give, I'll give you this person's name afterward if you're interested. I'm not quite so interested in just naming names and all this study, you know, and all that. But let's look at the principles and let's look at what's being said and what's going on. I'll just say this uh, is a he's a, you know, someone I had heard of before I read this fairly prominent person in evangelical circles. Somebody who's written some good books, somebody I've learned from. And here's what he says in this article written May 15th, 2018. He says, for all of my passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ, which has been accurate and faithful to the best of my ability, the gospel that I have held so dear has been in reality a truncated and incomplete gospel. Now stop there for just a second. 
You see why it's so important what I've just done in outlining to us from the Scriptures what the Gospel actually is. Okay, so this guy is going into the Gospel that I've held to you over all these years is truncated and incomplete. Truncated, it's cut short. It's not the full thing. It's incomplete. So, if he's using the word in any way, shape, or form like the New Testament uses the word, then we should expect him to go on and say what? I didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I didn't believe that Jesus' atonement actually accomplished our salvation. I didn't believe that Jesus was actually righteous in his life. You see what I'm saying? Because he's using the big gun here, the the word gospel. You know what he goes on to say? He says, I'm writing today on the day following the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Because I have a humbling confession to make. And then he goes on and he says, I'm going to try and find the exact quote here. I am now convinced that I cannot be a voice for one, the mercy of God, without being a voice for the justice of God. Sadly, I have preached grace and been silent in the face of injustice. The cross forbids me to close my eyes to any form of injustice, whether personal, corporate, governmental, ecclesiastical, or systemic. He says, There should be no community that is more present, active, and a vocal advocate for justice than the community that preaches the gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ. But how can we advocate for those with whom we have no functional relationship. So here's what he's done. In his statement of saying, I held to a truncated, incomplete gospel, he's saying now he is woke. You know that, have you heard that term? Got people getting woke all over out there. I'm not going to comment on the grammar. But getting woke means, in essence, that, and the majority of the time it's applied this way, as a white person, you come to realize your privilege, and you realize that those who are minorities or persons of color have disadvantages that you do not have since you're white, And so you come to a place of understanding that in the systems that we have established in society and in government, those systems are geared against these folks and that you have now awakened to that reality and the reality of your white privilege and you are now going to live as an ally and you are going to promote social justice. Okay, we'll talk. I'm going to do a whole lesson on social justice. But what's what's the problem with the way he's communicating this when he says that he is repenting of holding to a truncated gospel? And then he goes on to say, because I didn't I didn't really believe that black people are systematically oppressed by the police in ways that whites aren't. Because I did not really believe that our whole system of 
governmental housing is geared against the blacks. Because of these things, he says, I didn't really understand how to live out the gospel. But when he says he held to a truncated gospel, he's using the gospel in more definitional terms there. But then what he means is, what he really means as you read through it is, I don't think I was living out the principles of the gospel in the way that I should. But here's the reality. Was he using the word gospel in any way that the Bible uses it? As I've already demonstrated, the Bible uses the word gospel to define what God has done for us to save us through the life and work of Jesus Christ. Okay? So it confuses the issue. What happened early on in the social gospel movement during the industrial era, mid to late 1800s after the Civil War into the early 1900s, is that based primarily off of the writings of Walter Rauschenbusch, you had a group of people within Christendom who began to strongly promote what they called justice toward impoverished people living in the slums, issues like child labor laws, okay? And as we go along, I mean, there are things, I'm not saying that those types of things shouldn't be addressed, okay? There are true injustices that need to be addressed. But what began to happen in the social gospel movement is that the term gospel begins to be used to say you're supposed to be doing the gospel and taking care of all these injustices in the world And the word gospel was not being used in any way, shape, or form the way the New Testament uses the word gospel. And then the true gospel began to be replaced by a false gospel. And so rather than going into the slums and saying, you, sir, even though you are impoverished and living in a cardboard shack, you are a rebel against God. You have a divine sentence against you in the, in the capital, or a capital sentence against you in the divine court. You must believe in Jesus Christ to be saved or you will be damned. They would go in and say, you are one of the oppressed. And the gospel became saving people from societal ills, from material poverty. But that's not the gospel at all, according to the way the New Testament uses the word. So D.A. Carson rightly said, whenever we begin to open the door to use the gospel in the way the Bible does not use it, we are threatening to undermine the very gospel itself. Okay? Another point. We must not conflate law and gospel. To conflate something is to wrongly make it equivalent or say it's basically the same thing. We must not equate, conflate law and gospel. I'm just simply going to point out this. Stick with me. We're wrapping this up. I know I shouldn't say that because then I could lose everybody's attention, but I promise we're about done with this. But this is so crucial. We read several passages of scripture that says we're saved by the gospel, right? We're saved through the gospel. Are we saved by any good works that we do? 
Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So here's the thing. Never use the word gospel to describe good works or the law of God. Because if you begin to believe in any way, shape, or form that these good works are the gospel, then you are now blurring the lines between that which saves us, which is not our works, and that which we can even rightly do because we have been saved. You see how essential this is? Do not conflate law and gospel. This is one of the most fundamental biblical distinctions. The gospel is not the law. The gospel is not the commands of Christ. If you take soup to your neighbor, you are not giving them the gospel. You're giving them soup. (laughs) Right? How many times did we see over and over again, preach the gospel, preach the gospel, preach the gospel. Francis of Assisi never said it. There's no historical evidence he said it, but it's, it's, it's attributed to him. Preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. If he did say that, that is ridiculous and directly contrary to the word of God. Here's the reality. Does God call us to live out love? Does God call us to give to our neighbors? Does God call us to show that we've been transformed and out of love for him, let our light so shine before men that they see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven? Yes. But if you go and do a good deed for your neighbor, have you given them the gospel? No. If you have not communicated the gospel in some written or verbal form, you have not given the gospel. The gospel is in words. No words, no gospel. See what I'm saying? See how important this is. I had, a, I had an exact scenario or situation where somebody conflated law and gospel. I confronted someone and I said, through this entire conference, the gospel was not proclaimed. Because during a specific conference, the law was proclaimed over and over again, but never was the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus for the salvation of our souls proclaimed. And then you know what I was told by a particular person? You need to repent of saying that the gospel was never preached at our conference because it was preached. They conflated law and gospel. In their minds, the law is the good news. But you know what? The law is the bad news. And then the commandments of Christ are, that's not so much bad news for us. That's how we live out of love for God to show that we really love God. I began to look up some other messages that were preached by preachers in this conference. Running down through sermon audio. Oh, here's one that I'm really looking for. Do they ever preach the true gospel? Here's one where it would have to be there. Do the work of an evangelist. Evangelist, euangelion. It's just another form of that, the you know verbal form to do the work of an evangelist, to be the one who preaches the gospel. The message spent the first few minutes talking about how everybody 
in the evangelical church had a truncated gospel because they just wanted to get people justified and they never give them the law. And then it spent the rest of the message talking about about uh, Jonah and about going in and proclaiming the law to the Ninevites. And then it, it spent the rest of the message saying that the gospel is to go into nations and say, all of the political systems need to be conformed to a theonomic ethic. So Christians should be building hospitals and you should be taking over the systems of law and imposing the law of God. And that is doing the work of an evangelist. No, it's not. Not by any definition of the gospel or evangelist that you're going to find in the Bible whatsoever. It is blurring law and gospel. It is making something that it is not, that is dangerous. We're saved by the gospel, not the law. Nothing that we do as a good work is the gospel. Good works are ambiguous. Mormons do good works. Muslims do good works. Jehovah Witnesses do good works. They're not the gospel. Finally, keep the gospel the gospel. The main thing, the main thing. The gospel is the good news of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Like I said before, that's not good news like, yay, the UPS man is here. That's good news like my deepest thirst, my greatest need is fulfilled in Christ. Keep the main thing the main thing. We can focus so individually on our particular distinctives that we can quickly lose sight of the, the actual gospel and what the main thing is. We're going to conclude with a quiz. You don't necessarily have to answer out loud, but let's apply some of these things. Based on what I've said, which of the following would you say are true gospel ministry according to the biblical definition of gospel? Okay, you ready? Which of the following are true gospel ministry according to what we've just looked at is the biblical definition of gospel? Number one, telling a neighbor about Jesus and his death and resurrection to save us from our sins. Is that a gospel ministry action? You bet it is. Number two, traveling to Central Africa with a Christian organization to dig wells. No. No. Unless you go and actually give the gospel, which is in words, then you haven't done gospel ministry. You may be doing a, a, a good and a righteous thing. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying, yeah, you know, let's do those good things. But is that the gospel? Is it gospel ministry? No. Passing out Bibles at local events. Well, you can't assume that they read it. <laughs> okay. Oh, no. So I'll say no. Well, the Bible does contain the gospel. And so we are engaged in disseminating the gospel in some form. So we can at least say in some form I have disseminated the gospel, which is the, the written uh, word here about Jesus and what he's done. Have they read it? Have they not read it? We've passed it out. We're at least disseminating it. Okay. Open air preaching about the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Well, yeah, that'd be a gospel ministry. Teaching your children to obey God. That's not gospel ministry. It is, it is what God calls us to do. 
if we are teaching them the gospel proper, then we're engaged in gospel ministry there. We are obeying God when we teach them the whole counsel of God. But if we're teaching our children, thou shalt not lie or thou shalt not steal, we're teaching them law and what God wants us to do to show love toward him and toward neighbor. But we're not teaching gospel. Okay. Okay. Debating on Facebook. Whether the abolitionist or the progressive view in regards to pro-life is the best approach. Okay, that's not necessarily a gospel issue. Posting verses on Facebook, verses that refer to Jesus' righteous fulfillment of the law and his death and resurrection. Ah, so you, you can use Facebook for the gospel too. And again, I'm not trying to undermine other good things. You understand, we're just trying to make clear. Building schools or hospitals. Not in and of itself gospel ministry. Let's maintain clear distinctions. Let's let the Bible define its own terms. Let's use the big guns for what God has designed them for. And let's be careful not to put pressure on people with our distinctive views of how the gospel might apply in certain situations and say, if you do not do it the way I think you should do it, you are not preaching the gospel. And we'll talk more about this in the weeks ahead. Father, thank you for the time we've had together. Pray that you'll bless each and every person here. Pray that you'll bless those who listen to this and ask, Father, that your truth will continuously go forth for your For your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.